This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with mathematician Keith Devlin. He's the executive director of H-STAR at Stanford University, the Human Sciences and Technologies Advanced Research Institute. I spoke with him on July 11, 2013, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was at Stanford University in California. Download the MP3 of our produced show with Keith Devlin at onbeing.org. Hello. Yes, we had a half or an hour and a half there. Hello, this is Keith Devlin in Stanford. Hi, it's Krista Tippett. Hi, Krista. How are you? Hi. So glad to have you on the other end of the okay. microphone, so, headphones. <laughs> so you lived in, was it you lived in Germany for some time? Is I, that what I read I somewhere? did, yes, yes. Whereabouts? Um, Berlin, most of the 80s. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah, because I, I lived in Heidelberg in Bonn, but that was in the 70s. Okay. When Berlin was still behind the Iron Curtain. No, I was there in those bad <laughs> old days as well. Well, you're yeah, you sitting there. Yeah, that's yeah, right. It's 92, was it? The wall came down? Uh, 89, 89. 89, okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, so I, now I used to go to bed. Mm-hmm. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I also spent a couple of years in the UK. Um, I, did, okay, I, I yeah. spent, I love, Yorkshire is beautiful. I, did, I was more, oh, as a, yeah, spent yeah. a lot of time in Scotland and then also the south of England. But. Well, Scotland too, yeah. We, we, my institute at Stanford did a five-year collaboration with the University of Edinburgh. I used to go to, Edinburgh, used to, go to Scotland twice a year on somebody else's dime and wander up into the highlands. Oh, and, isn't oh, it beautiful? Yeah. 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 When it's not raining, it's beautiful. Actually, it's beautiful in the rain. It, it is, it is. Yeah, um, yeah. Beautiful. How long have you been in the States then? A long time? Um, since, well, I spent a lot of my career in the States anyway, but I came in 87 for a year and I'm still here. Okay. <laughs> so that's 26 years now, I guess. All right. <clears throat> yeah, and, and here's home now, that's for sure. Okay. Yeah. Um, so we get to have a, uh, we're going to turn this into an hour-long show. And yep. I'm really, I, I, you know, I have, I'm really, have really steeped myself in kind of the, the sweep of your ideas. We're not going to focus in on one book or one idea. Okay, um, yeah. And we get to have a real conversation. Obviously, we'll edit it down for that for that hour. Yeah. And we we probably won't go the full ninety minutes. We'll go maybe sixty seventy five minutes. Um, yeah. Uh, and yeah, and and it it can be a, a true conversation in the sense of if it's it, you know it doesn't have to be <coughs> linear. If there's something you want to <coughs> yeah. come back to pick up again, we can do that. It gets to be messy. Okay, and you, yeah. the idea is you want to just do minimal editing, just cut out coughs and false starts or anything like well, that. Well, we're going. We will have to cut uh, twenty or thirty yeah. minutes, so it, it's yeah. a, it's an edit. We actually do put the mm. the unedited interview up on our site, though, and a lot of people uh, download unedited interviews. Uh-huh. It's it's kind of counterintuitive. <laughs> kind of weird. It's sort of like watching a sausage being made. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah. 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 Well, it's interesting because we have this idea now in the culture, right, that people have yeah. no um, attention span. But the truth yeah. is that they, they actually will spend 90 minutes on big ideas um, if yeah. you've offered that to them. So I think sure you know will. that yeah. too, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Chris, yeah. how no, are I mean, we doing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, yeah. Well, I think we can. I think we can get going. Um, <coughs> do you need okay. me to? Do you need me to do what you had for breakfast? Any of that? Uh, have, have, have we got enough sound level? Yeah, that's what I'm now? wondering. I think we're okay. Yeah. I think we're okay. We're probably on okay. All right. Yeah. I've, I've, we've been talking for a while now. Yeah. yeah. All right. Um, so, uh, so you did? Were you born, bred, raised in Yorkshire? Is that right? Yeah, I was born in Hull uh, in uh, in what apparently was the worst snowstorm of the decade in 1947. So I had a very uh, exciting melodramatic entry into the world, which you don't recall. 
I don't recall no, but uh, my uh, my mother, who's, who's long passed away now, uh, she told me of the the difficulty getting a midwife in and the doctor mm. and anything. And the, the the lady next door actually delivered me, so because uh, okay. nobody could get out. There were snowdrifts outside the house of several feet deep, apparently. Uh. So the world didn't seem to want me here, but they've had to put up with me for 66 years since, and uh, and I think they've got used to it. Yeah. <laughs> was there yeah. a was there a religious or spiritual background to your childhood? No, I mean I was growing up in England, and by definition you are C of E, yeah, um, which, which is just this sort of nominal sort of thing. Um, no, I, you know, my parents did what parents did in those days. They sort of uh, felt obliged to send me to Sunday school and things like that. They, they, they weren't particularly religious, but they just thought it was part of their duty as parents to mm. to send me to a to, to a Sunday school every every week. Um, but once I'd reached the age of reason, whatever that was, when I was seven or eight or something, um, I sort of reflected on it, decided that that wasn't for me, uh, and uh, haven't been involved in this ever since. Okay, and and were you? Um... <coughs> Were you drawn to to math, mathematics, pretty early in your life? Uh, no, not at all. No, I... Um, I... I'm not sure what I was drawn to when I was very young. I, it wasn't a scholastic home. It was a, it was a working-class home in, 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 in Hull. Um, we were about uh, 200 yards away from the Hull docks. Um, mm. And so it was, a, it was somewhat cosmopolitan, but I, uh, in a sort of 1940s version of cosmopolitan. Uh, but no, I, uh, it was just an ordinary working-class um, home. Um, parents didn't have books around. Well, I mean, they, they, had, they, they joined in. They were members of a library, so books would come into the house. But there weren't bookshelves in the house. There were no books around. There were no sort of uh, content newspapers. There were just sort of daily rags that, that, that were sort of brought in. So it wasn't an intellectual home at all. It was a working-class home. <clears throat> and I was a sort of... Um, I was an unusual kid because uh, it, it was to transpire that I was the only one that would go to university from that district and so forth. Mm. But um, I, So I was a little bit of, a, of an outcast, uh, which meant that when I was very young, uh, the other kids would, would beat me up and that kind of thing. But uh, I, I wasn't an intellectual by any means. I was just... Uh, you know, I used to like playing soccer and rugby and and, and, and rough and tumble things, and right. so I was. Uh, uh, it, it was a sort of a classic uh, working class childhood, and the the mathematics came much later. I uh, the only role model I had in the family of, of anyone that was sort of you know had a degree and a, and a professional career was an uncle by marriage, um, someone who'd married my uh, my father's sister. And uh, he was a chemist um, hmm. and, and had gone into managing a chemical company. And, and Hull, in those days, if it wasn't to do with the docks, it was to do with chemical manufacturing. Hmm. And so he was a role model. And the interesting thing is he was the person that I identified with when I first met him. His house was full of books. Uh, he would travel around. Um, he had an extensive collection of jazz records. Uh, and he lived the life of an intellectual. And what was clear to me when I first met him, and this was a young child, was... A sort of a rapport with him. We didn't become close in any real sense, but there was something that resonated, the idea of books and things, and I would... When we went, when my family would go around and we would talk to them, he and I would talk, and it was obviously that we were having a conversation that nobody else in the room was interested in. Mm-hmm. So there was some kind of connection, and and it was through him 
so my first int- sort of introduction to anything to do with science and technology or learning in general was to chemistry. And so, you know, that's when that's your only role model, that's what you aspire to be. So by the time I got, was uh, sort of, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, uh, I was already sort of in, toying with the idea of chemistry. Not, not that I knew it was much about it, except it was people with, uh, with, with sort of lab coats and test tubes and that kind of thing. <laughs> right. But it seemed sort of, sort of an interesting thing to do. Um, and, and I thought I would probably go on and, and sort of go into chemistry. Um, but that was pushed sideways a little bit in 19... Um, let me think, this would have been... Oh, let's see. Uh, it would have been 1950. I guess it was Sputnik that went up in. Was it 57 that Sputnik went up? So uh, you would have been 1957. a teenager. Yeah, young that would teenager. have been 10. 10. I was, 10. That's, that's right, yeah, I was 10. Or maybe it was 1958. But anyway, just before, or just when I was about to, or just when I'd started at high school, uh, Sputnik went up. Hmm. And suddenly, and, and, and as a kid, I'd been interested in. In science fiction, which in those days was mostly on the radio, there was uh, yes, BBC right. Radio had a whole right. series of, of, of so there was a thing called Dan Dare and and various sort of um, science fiction. Actually, science fiction is much better on the radio because you don't need computer graphics. You can you can rely on the human imagination to create the yeah, images if so you do good. it right. So, yeah. um, science fiction's never been the same since uh, since images came because <laughs> the images I had in my mind created by sound and audio channels was much more powerful. So I was excited by sort of science fiction, as, as 10- and 11-year-old boys often are. And then when the Sputnik went up, that was about to become reality. And at that point, I sort of began to switch away from the idea of doing chemistry, which I was beginning to realise involves smelly chemicals and things like that, <laughs> stained fingers, you know. And, and, yeah. and, and by the time you've got hormones going around in your male body, the idea of having smelly fingers is not very, not very appealing <laughs> because you realise it's not appealing to, to, to members of the opposite sex or indeed your own sex. So, uh, so I, I, I sort of began to sort of think in terms of physics. Um, at that point... Uh, and. and uh, I wasn't bad at mathematics, but it didn't interest me. I mean, you know, there is no really mathematics at that age. You're just doing bits of arithmetic and techniques for long division and things. So there's nothing very exciting and stimulating about it. It's just procedural stuff. Um, And I was sort of okay at it, but middling. But once I decided I was going to go into physics, then, of course, I realised that I needed to be good at mathematics because that was the key to physics. And so when I actually arrived at high school at age 11... Um, I um, as the only kid in those days, you you separated at age eleven with something called the eleven plus exam, and I was actually the only kid from my school that ever had passed mm. uh, at the time mm. I passed it. And I'm not sure anyone ever did since then, so I was clearly mm. sort mm. of unusual. But um, so I decided I needed to learn mathematics in order to do physics, and so then I actually put a lot of effort into it, and. Uh, and actually got pretty good at it. I mean, I was certainly sort of one of the best kids in the class in terms of results so, you, you uh, throughout know, my high school career. Oh, I want to ask you this. You know, you, yeah. you, there's such a contrast between the way, the way, not just the way you speak about mathematics, but the way you, yeah. you just uh, define it. And yeah. there's such a contrast between that and the, well, I'd say the understanding and even the experience of mathematics that so many people have right at that age of school and then maybe never have another experience. Uh, yeah, that's right. If, if the last experience you have of mathematics is what you learned, certainly up to the middle level of high school and, yeah. and, and to a large extent even right through the end of high school, the way it's taught, uh, you've basically never seen mathematics. And so most people in the world haven't a clue what mathematics is. Right. I mean, uh, so let's talk really about some of the school. ways that you, that you, that you, you, know, you just, reading you is just is, is your, your imagination. Yeah. Yes. I'm starting starting with so one definition is you know, the science of patterns. 
Yeah, I, I was actually one of the people that really pushed that in the 1980s. As, I mean, it's a, in a sense, it's a, it's a vacuous description because, you know, every, any science is, is the science of something. I mean, psychology is the science of patterns of the mind. Mm. Sociology is the science of patterns of, of, of social interaction. So you can call anything the science of patterns. What makes it mathematics is the kind of patterns you study and the, and the methodology you use. <clears throat> but the reason I pushed it was dis- very much to get away from this idea that it was about calculation and computation so it was mm-hmm. i pushed i am i you know I, it, it's it's nonsensical but it needed to be done it needed to establish itself as as different um and and you know more recently i've actually started using the phrase mathematical thinking you know mm-hmm. I, i'm giving one of these massive online courses from stanford i'm about to give it the third time yeah i want to talk uh, about September. that in a little while yeah. and we'll come back to that but the, the, the thing to note is that i don't call it introduction to mathematics i call it introduction to mathematical thinking right. to say that this isn't about computation and calculation and solving equations it's about thinking about the world in a certain way that we have learned over the centuries is extremely powerful. Not the only way, not the best way, a valuable way. Mm. Yeah, I mean, here's another definition that, you know, you use variations on this a lot, that mathematics is a vast and beautiful mental landscape that generations of human beings have have created over 3,000 years. A mental landscape. and that's what stumbled. That's that's when I became a mathematician. That's what I stumbled on at age fifteen or sixteen. When I here I was learning all of this mathematics because I needed it. It was utilit- I had a utilitarian view of mathematics. I was learning it because I needed the, to solve equations because I was going to be solving them in physics. Mm-hmm. And then at the age of about sixteen or seventeen, it all flipped because it all came together in my mind. It was no longer this disjointed collection of techniques you could use to solve problems. It all fell into the place, into this wonderful landscape. It was as if I'd been stumbling around in a forest and suddenly I'd climbed to the top of a tree and looked out and thought, this is the most beautiful place in the world. You can't tell it when you're down in the trees, which I had been, but the moment you reach an elevation where it all falls into place and you can see the whole topographic display in front of you, then the beauty is incredible. And I stumbled onto that at age 16, 17 in my process to become a physicist, and the moment I discovered it, I said, "This is much more beautiful than than, than I'm going to than the world I'll be studying in physics. Um, <laughs> I want to study mathematics, and I've been studying right. it ever since." Right. I mean, yeah. this idea that that also that what you saw, what you work in, is is not just about the physical world or about abstract equations, yeah. but but the inner worlds of our mind, um, and then in fact yeah. that numbers. And this is such an interesting point you make that numbers. Our abstractions that, that that they only exist in our mind, and then what we do with yeah. them. Yeah, there's this, there's this strong feeling that you have when you do mathematics that it's actually a sort of an objective reality that the numbers it's, it's known as the Platonic realm. Yeah, that there's this sort of it goes back to Plato's writings and ideas that you that the, that you are discovering things that are in this sort of ethereal world out there, uh, and in a sense that's that's the case. But but when you start to dig deeper you realise that that ethereal world itself has been created by generations of human beings. And so mathematics exists as a psychological and a social construct, and, and which means that when you're doing mathematics, you're actually, even if you're doing mathematics about quarks or electrons or whatever it is, superstrings, if you're doing mathematics about, uh, about physics or something in the world, in some sense, yes, what you're doing is learning more about the world. But in a deeper sense, when you're doing mathematics, what you're really learning about is how the human mind encounters and makes sense of the world. It's Mm. really a mirror. So mathematics, in some senses, 
is a lens through which you look at the world, but in a deeper sense, it's a mirror through which you look at yourself in a very abstract and penetrating way. Mm. And and I know this is frustrating to you because when you when you describe it that way, it it, it feels so essential to who we are as a species, right? That somehow each of us should have some sense of that, even if we're not professional mathematicians. Or, you know, this this, uh, line of Galileo that you... That you also yeah. evoke often that language is that, sorry that mathematics is the language in which uh, nature was written, which the universe is written, um, yeah. and then there's then there's the great question about why why we don't really most of us walk around knowing this um, because no one's told us. Um, mm. that, I mean, I've, I've spent a lot of my career trying to rectify the fact that that, that most people don't seem to get a chance to see this, which is a pity because, you know, we, we get one shot at life, at least I think we're going to get one shot at life, and, and it's a wonderful thing and we should maximise uh, what we can out of it. And so uh, I've actually spent a lot of, of effort, put a lot of effort in my career to try to convey to other people the beauty that I, I first saw when I was 16 or 17 years of age and have continued to see ever since then. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you, I've, I've certainly had successes because I get people coming up to me in the streets saying, I read your book 30 years ago, one of your books, and it's changed my life and, and, and so on and so forth. Very often they are professors of mathematics at universities, which is, is a kind <laughs> right. of nice thing to do. So, um, so the success rate in terms of conversions is not high, um, but it's non-zero and uh, and I'm, I'm pleased to have done it. And it doesn't stop me trying to do it because I think there's a, there's a wonderful world out there and, uh, and it's hard to see it unless someone opens the door for you. Uh, I was lucky. I, I, I discovered mathematics in spite of my education, yeah. um, and most of us, I think, do. Occasionally, you, you, you come up against a really great math teacher that can open your eyes. In my case, I didn't have bad math teachers, but they, uh, their view of mathematics was the same as everybody else's. It was a utilitarian subject that's, that, that you, you need to know. Um, but they prepared the groundwork, helped prepare the groundwork for me to make that discovery. But I've been, been more proactive, and I've been writing books and doing TV and radio and things to try to convey to people that there's this really interesting world out there if only you sort of free your mind and, and begin to look into it. Oh, is it? Oh, do you, I'm so sorry. That is my telephone. I am mortified. Hang on. <laughs> okay, I'd like the tape, please. I am. Oh, no. I can't believe it. I, I usually don't even bring it with me into this studio. I'm it so... It sounded like English church yeah, bells, Yeah, it is. Actually, it is so. English church bells. Oh, it's wonderful. We should, you should leave that in the broadcast version. That was wonderful. It was very, a nostalgic moment for me. I, oh. I pictured you in a studio in Oxford with the bells going on outside in St. Giles or something. Oh, I'm so sorry. No, okay, well, let's keep going. So, so, so I'll tell you, you know, you know I um, have no... I'm, I'm one of these people who who gave up on myself mathematically a long time yeah. ago. But then in my life of conversation on radio, I've interviewed, I interview a lot of scientists, a lot of physics, yeah. physicists um, yeah. and astronomers. I, I have to say, mm. I, I'm not sure I've interviewed many pure mathematicians, I've in, but I've interviewed people who use mathematics. And, yeah, so, yeah. and so what I've come to, and I think also my listeners come to, is an appreciation, you know, I think it may be too late for all of us, for many of us to actually grapple <laughs> yeah. directly with mathematics, but to yeah. to start to understand the importance of this as part of who we are and as, as part of the universe. Um, I mean, I yeah. think one of the ways you, uh, maybe one of the ways that you talk about this and have worked with it that does help bring it down to earth a little bit is some of the connection you've made between between language and mathematics, mm. 
Could yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. In fact, the, 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 this, this massive online course I'm giving, it actually begins with, a, with an analysis of parts of language. Uh, I think there's a, you know, people get turned off mathematics for various ways. If you teach it as just sort of stuff you need to know to balance your checkbook, which is yeah. nonsense because none of us balance our checks, but computers do that for us. <laughs> That's right. um, so, you know, uh, so... But, 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 when there's an emphasis on, on, on the sort of the calculation, the computation, right, it's not arithmetic, things, right? There's a distinction between yeah, yeah. arithmetic and mathematics, first of all. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 so mathematics is, is, is a much more general thing. It, it's, it's, um, it, it's what it is. Um, you know, I've lost the thread of where we were going to go with that one. Um, well, well, well we're talking about the, the, the connection mm-hmm. between language and arithmetic. And well, the, the language yeah. thing, that's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think when, when it's taught through, through commerce or calculation or through physics or anything... Um, it's it sort of you're setting itself up to fail because only some people are interested in those things. On the other hand, because language is so important to us as living creatures, everyone's interested in language one way or another, be we language mm-hmm. mavens or just interested in listening to the radio or reading or novels or things. You know, language is a fundamental part of what we are. So if you can start the mathematical journey by turning mathematics into an analysis of language, everybody's on your side. You haven't turned people off. And so beginning the study of mathematics with language, which certainly can be done, or it, hasn't done, but it isn't done very often, then you're starting from a place where everyone feels comfortable. Because everyone knows about language, they all have intuitions about it, and you can begin, you can interest them by challenging their intuitions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, can, you can turn it around on them and say, you use this piece of language all the time, let's stop and understand what it really means and why what you think it means isn't what it literally means. And when you start to do that... People are intrigued, so it's a very good jumping-off point. Now, it'll only take you so far because language, by its nature, is ambiguous and fluid and it's not precise in a sort of clockwork sense. Yeah. And we also so have different levels of um, fluency with language, right? And there's different fluencies. Yeah, so yeah. eventually you have to transition to mm-hmm. examples to do with, with money or physics or something. I mean, that's inevitable. Mm-hmm. You're going to have to do that. Mm-hmm. But it's good if you've carried people along to the point where they can see where you're going with it. And so I, I think if we started with the study of language in schools, we'd be able to interest people more in mathematics for much longer than we, we at present do. I mean, could you give me an example of how you would start to talk about mathematics by talking about language? What would that, okay. what would that be like? Yeah. I mean, it really, I don't know if you read that book by Stephen Pinker a few years ago called The Language Instinct. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's one of the best books ever written, I think. It's certainly the best one Steve's ever written. It's a wonderful book. Uh, and that's what he does. He picks upon Noam Chomsky's work from the 50s and 60s at MIT in the linguistics department. But it's really sort of analysing language in a precise way, uh, looking at the parts of speech, looking at how, how meaning arises from language, and looking at the way that language simply functions, the ambiguities in language, mm. uh, the jokes. I mean, why is, a, why is a pun funny? Why is a joke of various kinds funny? And when you sort of analyse them, uh, you, 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 you begin to... You can start looking at elements of mathematics. In fact, in, in a book I wrote in 2000 called The Math Gene, I actually made a, a case based on, based on a sort of rational reconstruction over human evolutionary development. I made the case that actually mathematics and language are actually two sides of the same coin in, in terms of, of evolutionary development. Like the human beings, when we, when we develop the capacity for language, and nobody knows when that was, it might, only be, it might be as recent as 50,000 years ago, but when our ancestors developed ling- language capacity, at that moment they developed the capacity for mathematics. It's the same capacity. Right, and it the, just plays out in different ways. So there, and there are two things in that. I mean, so, so one of the things is... That partly because, as you say, that language 
is in fact what the brain uses to construct numbers, right? I mean, language mm-hmm. is one of these that's tools. That's part of it, yeah. 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 Um, and then all, but also this, you know, the kind of deeper idea you're presenting that that um, we have an innate capacity to learn mathematics as we have this natural innate capacity to learn language. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the obvious difference is, is, that, is what it takes to trigger that capacity. And in the case of language, we know that so long as you're exposed to language yeah. at a certain critical stage in development between, was it six and eight years old or whatever it is, so, so long as you're exposed to enough of it, the brain triggers it. Um, it turns out that for various reasons, that in the case of mathematics, it takes several years and a lot of more effort in order to trigger it. But okay. the capacity is latent in all of us. Um, it has to be, otherwise none of us could learn it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, I just think in my own family, I, I had a grandfather who had a second grade education, but he had this prodigious math- capacity to do things with numbers in his head. You know, it was completely mysterious. Yeah. Yeah. Completely mysterious, not taught... Um, I don't think he had any clue why he could do it. Um, yeah. And then I have a son now, say, who's 14, who's very intelligent, you know, has gotten a good education and said to me recently, um, and, you know, he has a really interesting mind. Um, yeah. But he said to me, uh, he's, he's doing well in everything but math. And he uh-huh, said, yeah. he said, um, my brain just doesn't work that way. <laughs> um. You know, and I, I mean, I think he's not the only kid who says that. I think I probably said that at some point. So then I just so then I you know I'm come I'm and so then I'm in in the context of that I'm reading you and and this this yeah. this sense that there's something innate in us and then why why does that not make itself manifest? Yeah, because yeah. you know? well, you know, it's true. I mean, everyone's on a spectrum with physical abilities and yeah. mental abilities. Created. Yeah. We're on a spectrum, and, and, and but 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 a lot of the problem in mathematics is that an awful lot of what goes on in the in the school system is basically trying to train the mind to do what a a $10 calculator can do, Mm. um, follow rules and algorithms and procedures. And one thing that we do know is that the human brain does not find that natural. The human brain is analogical, um, not logical. And so Mm. when we try to force it to to, 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 to be procedural and exact... The brain simply doesn't like it. I mean, it's just not designed for that. We, we are essentially big thinkers. We make, we make leaps. We make uh, judgments. We're very good at doing things that computers actually are terrible at doing. Hmm. Um, it's, the, the problem that people have difficulty is with the kind of mathematics that focuses on the things that computers actually do very well, following rules precisely. Now, there's a good reason why the education system did that for many hundreds of years, it's because we didn't have computers. It was clearly important from, 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 from actually from 3,500 BCE, if not earlier, in, in the Sumerian period. It, it's, it was important for many thousands of years to be able to do computation and calculation because that was the basis of commerce and trade and buying and selling. Right. And you had to do it in your head or with an abacus board or something. So for hundreds of years, it was actually important to train the mind to follow rules, to do computations and get the right answer. Right. Well, now we've automated that and, it's, and we carry around devices in our pockets that can do that. And so it's no longer critical for, for our lives and for society that people can do that, which means that we can spend more time letting the brain do things that the brain is really well suited for hmm. that computers can't do very well, making value judgments, uh, making analogical leaps and... Uh, and there's simply no need to force people through that straitjacket of turning them into a cheap imitation of a calculator, a, a poor imitation, because no matter how much you train someone, you're not as fast and as accurate as an electronic calculator. Um, yeah. The trouble is the education system 
is at least 50 years behind the, the changes in technology and society. Right. The, that, it just takes me back to you saying in the beginning that, that you don't talk about mathematics but about mathematical thinking and that what yeah. we learn in school is that old-fashioned, narrow idea of mathematics, but you, you're saying... But but you're saying that the brain that the brains are that that's not natural to learn as you say to come up with the right answers, um, but how yeah. interesting that could be if even at a young age we were offered the invitation to do mathematical thinking. Yeah, it's as if you went along and you said, "I want to be an architect," and you go to architecture school, and the first five years they teach you how to lay bricks accurately and, and, and in nice straight lines. You know, yeah. you do need. I mean. Taking advantage of being an architect does depend on the fact that people can lay bricks, right. but bricklaying and architecture are not the same thing. And mathematics is, is the, the architecture. It's the creative stuff you can do with these bricks, and, and it's no longer necessary for people to be able to build, to, to lay bricks themselves because we now have machines that handle the bricklaying for us. Right, right, right. Actually, so do builders. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, oh, I want to talk to you about something else, uh, another connection that, that um, you shine a light on in an interesting way that's always been very intriguing to me, which is the connection between mathematics and music. Right, like we uh-huh, all yeah. know that that connection is there, but I've never really been able to comprehend it. Um, I'm not sure I can I comprehend it now, but I, again, I, I feel like you opened this up in an interesting way. I mean, one one place you said the most beautiful equations are like sonnets. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, you said yeah. that mathematics and music are both captured in dry symbols, but they both come alive when interpreted by the human mind. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, in the days when. Uh, when the only way to store and distribute music before recording devices was to write it down in symbolic notation, yeah. then, of course, if you, if you couldn't master that notation, you couldn't get to the music. Um, well, mathematics is still largely still like that, and maybe always will still be like that. You, it, it is a hurdle that you have to master mathematical notation to be able to get to the mathematics that it encodes. But, but as I, just as a, a trained musician who can read music can look at a musical score and in their head, in their mind they can hear that music playing. Yeah. For a mathematician, the same thing is true. Providing it's in, in, a, in a part of mathematics you're familiar with, you can look at those symbols, and in your mind, this mathematical world is created, and you can see the flow of the ebb of ideas, and you can see it going on. It comes to life in your mind. And take in the and, beauty uh, of it, which is a word that uh, you uh, and other yeah. mathematicians use yeah, constantly. And, and, and so you, don't, you, you see through the symbols mm-hmm. to what they're about. Just as, I mean... The, the interesting thing is, I don't read music, so to me, music is just an intemperate... You know, I, I can really resonate with people who can't get mathematics from looking at a book because yeah. I can't look at a musical score and hear the music. Yeah. Someone has to interpret it for me to play it. And so uh, I know exactly what it feels for most people to look at mathematics. So, you know, you did this interesting project a couple of years ago um, called Harmonious Equations... Oh, which I had yeah. so much fun discovering. Ah, and I, that was a hoot, yeah. I, yeah, and I think we'd like to layer some of that music into this production. Oh, please do, yes. Yeah, and ah, so, yeah, so I, so I wanted, and I also thought just talking about a few of those, we won't go through every yeah. piece, but just talking about a few of them, um, about the equations that captured you. Um, and, yeah. you know, and again, like what you saw what, in terms of what it means uh, that then got translated into the music um, w- would be a lot of fun. So yeah. so let's just talk about a few of those. I, so um, there was this o- Euler's, is that how they said it? Euler's identity. Euler. Yeah, Euler, Euler's yeah, identity. Yeah. Um, you know, again, this very intriguing num- um, 
language at the supreme level of abstraction, seemingly different conte- concepts sometimes turn yeah. out to have surprisingly intimate connections. And, yeah. and then as you, as you uh, narrate the, the, the numbers uh, that are part of that equation, you know, yeah. what, what becomes clear to, to me, even though I don't understand this, is that, you know, you, there's kind of a world within each of these numbers. Yeah. Um, and, and then you talk about them uh, uh, becoming a perfect mathematical composition. <laughs> right, right, absolutely. Yeah. So say, say a little bit about what Euler's identity is for uh, someone who doesn't um, know. Well, I've gone, you know, I, 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 people have, you know, because I do work for the media and things, I always get asked the question, what's your favorite equation? You know, what's your most beautiful equation? So I, uh, even though in a sense the, the, the scientist in me says I don't have a favorite one, I, I love them all, um, that's like saying you, have, you love all your children, that's that kind right, of thing. Yeah. But, uh, but, 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 but knowing that that's not a good answer on, on radio and TV, I've actually, I always give an answer and my answer is always, is that it's, it's Euler's identity, and that's certainly uh, a, a, a justifiable one from my point of view, um, because there are these, there are these, there are very few basic constants in mathematics. Uh, there's zero and one, the sort of the identity for for addition and for multiplication, and then there's the number pi. Um, with the, the ratio of the circumference of a circle to its diameter. Um, then there's the number E, the base for the natural logarithms, and, and then they have standard notations. There's a le- the Greek letter pi. We have the, le- the, the, the sort of the italic E for, for the base for natural logarithms. And the only other mathematical constant that's so... Well, there are some others, but the, the big five rounds off when you have I for the square root of negative one. So you've got these five most fundamental constants, zero which is to do with addition, one to do with multiplication, um, pi to do with geometry of circles, e to do with, with natural logarithms, and a square root of negative one, which is to do with algebra. And given that they're coming from different parts of mathematics, or so it seems, um, there should be no reason why these things connect together. But it turns out there's the most beautiful, elegant identity uh, that connects them together, which says that e raised to the power i times pi plus one equals zero. You've got an equation. Each one is mentioned once. All it involves is a plus sign, an equal sign, and an exponentiation and a multiplication sign for the i pi. And you've got this this identity. There's no reason on the face of it why that should be the case. I remember when I first met that as a teenager... I was completely blown away. I mean, that you know, if if anything could have come close to convincing me that there was this thing, this thing called God out there, that was surely it. <laughs> that was it. Um, but I'm a sceptical person, and I don't I don't accept miraculous conclusions. I actually spent and I discovered this when I was 17 or 18 and heading beginning to head in towards mathematics. By the time I'd graduated in mathematics, I knew enough mathematics to understand why I was surprised. And, of course, as with all miracles, once you understand them, it's just part of the miracle of life itself, mm. not of the actual individuals. You realise that that equation simply tells us that these things are actually all connected. It's not just that there's addition and multiplication and exponentiation and, 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 and geometries and things. It actually all is part of this landscape. You know, as I mentioned earlier, that when you climb the mountain, you can see that all of these disparate bits of mathematics, these different techniques, are part of the same landscape. Yeah. Euler's identity is an instantiation of the fact that what we thought previously was separate things actually always were part of, within the realm of mathematics, always were part of the same whole. And that one just nails it beautifully because... And, and as with good art, not only does it reveal... 
Um, not only does, not, in, not only is the beauty, the intrinsic beauty of the equation itself, in, in this case, not the beauty of the symbols, but the, the logical connections between them, the elegance of the connections between them. So it's beautiful on that sort of technical level, but it's also beautiful because it tells us... It's a great insight into the world. You know, just like the Mona Lisa mm. smile mm. captures an awful lot about being a human. And you can... you can I mean, people discuss for endlessly what was going on in her mind, assuming it was a she that was the model, um, <laughs> what was going on in that person's mind when that painting was done and what did the painter capture. Um, but it's the same with, the, with Euler's identity. It tells you an awful lot about the, 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 the mathematical world that, that, we're, that we're exploring. Mm. Uh, it, it's an absolutely beautiful piece of art, mm. as well as a beautiful piece of mathematics. Mm. That's wonderful. Thank you. <laughs> and then in the Pythagoras theorem, you know, you have this yes. uh, statement. This is another piece yeah. that you commissioned with these musicians. Um, yeah. And, and there's this, I just want to ask you about this statement that you, that you made. Um, that Pythagoras said that number is the ruler of forms and ideas and the cause of gods and demons. Yeah. And you took that phrase as the as the theme for this song. So, to, what? But what did he mean by that? What do you understand in that statement of Pythagoras? <laughs> um, well, we've got to go back and put ourselves in the mind of Pythagoras. It was sort of mystical. It was a secret society. Yeah. There was all sort of a cultural realms to it. Um, Actually, you know, I've, I've speculated about one of the interesting things about mathematics, and this comes up when people talk about things like the golden ratio and all of this kind of stuff. Is this even people who don't have, who profess not to have mathematical ability, there's a sort of fascination with number. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, you, I've written many times about the golden ratio because people say that the golden ratio has all sorts of wonderful properties, most of which are completely false and bogus. You know, it's got mm-hmm. nothing to do with the path, and then it's not the dimensions of the most perfect rectangle. And all. It's, it's all complete nonsense. And yet, people, if you look at them, I, and I've, I've actually given talks where I've, I've, you know, I've demonstrated why these things are nonsensical and there's no evidence for them. And people will stand up and argue vehemently that I'm wrong. And they will really get passionate about the fact that, yes, the golden ratio can be found in this thing and that thing and so forth. So you ask yourself, why do people get so passionately involved with number? And they do. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, even though they're not, they're not numbers people, they seem to have this, this belief and they don't want their beliefs to be challenged. And the only answer to that I can come up with is that deep in our psyches, we know that the world we now live in, the lives we lead, depend in a fundamental way on the discovery and the invention of numbers, just as they do on language. You know, the only, I mean, people get just as defensive about their use of language. You know, people right. don't like being criticised for, for their use of language. And the reason is, I think, is that's so fundamental to who and what we are. Now, we acknowledge that language is part of what we are. Most people don't publicly acknowledge that number is part of what we are, but I think deep down in their psyche, they know we were. Well, uh, but there's the some mystery of, to it, right? The fact yeah, that we don't yeah. understand it makes it mysterious, that, that, makes that, that intuition that, 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 mysterious. That adds to it, absolutely that adds yeah. to it. But, but, but we all sort of know that they're important. And, and, and I think that goes back to what Pythagoras was saying, even back then in the days when it was sort of more occultish uh, and folded in with religious beliefs and all kinds of things. Even back then... Um, I think people realise that that numbers were a big, big deal, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's what what, what Pythagoras's quote was uh, uh, w- mm. was referring to. Mm. Mm. Okay, yeah. And and then um, now, Euler was a person. Euler, yes, Leonard Euler. And yeah. so you also have Euler's polyhedron formula. 
Yeah, he was uh, quite literally a polymath within mathematics. He, he did a whole bunch of things. Um, uh, he's one of the most prolific mathematicians of all time. When did he um, live? Um, let's see, Euler was the 1700s. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, and what you, what you mentioned that's so intriguing in that, in that piece of art you made about this is um, you, 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 you uh, highlighted this connection between, or this application of this formula to the countries of the world, to edges and borders. Actually, I need to correct it. So let's say a little bit about how that, 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 yeah, that, that harmonious of... equations came to be made. Okay. I actually did a, I did, I, I was doing a, a radio interview on, a, on an NPR show. I forget which one it was now, uh, here in the Bay Area, um, one of the, the local LPR affiliates. I did this thing some years ago. And uh, the producer, uh, the, the host producer of the programme, he happened to know some people who... He lived in Santa Cruz. and He knew these people, this, 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 this choral group called Zamba mm-hmm. that did sort of choral renditions. And just out of fun, he went to them and said, I'm interviewing this guy, Devlin, and he recorded the piece. Uh, and, he, and I'd talked about Euler's identity. And he, and he, he liked what I'd said. Um, I, and I said something, as I've just said to you a moment ago. So he liked, and he said, he said to this group... Can you come up with a piece of, with a with a song that will sort of put his words to music? And they produced this this little thing that, that became part of harmonious equations. So the musical creation was them, and it turned out that a couple, two or three of those people were math teachers, high school math oh, teachers. Really? So they had some facility. Yeah. But they came up with that when the show aired on the radio. I hadn't heard this, but when it aired, this thing played at the end, and it was a huge success. And I phoned him up or emailed him, whatever it was, and said, um, "This is wonderful." Hmm. Um, you know, who are these people? And he put me in touch with them. And at that point, the moment I heard it, I said, I need to meet these people because they had musically interpreted Euler's identity uh, in feeding it in both locally and globally. They, they sort of interpreted the mathematics within the, within the metre of the music and the, the choice of notes and things and so forth. And then they sort of tried to reflect it in a more holistic sense. And I thought they'd really nailed Euler's identity in song. And I was so intrigued that I contacted them and it's only an hour's drive for, to Santa Cruz, went down to meet them and said, look, I've got this wild idea. Would you like to come to, to collaborate with me on a show called Harmonious... Well, I don't know if it had the name then. It became yeah. known as Harmonious Equations. I said, I will come up with my... I think originally I said my 10 most favourite equations in mathematics. I think we ended up with seven or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. In any case, um, I came up with them. And the way, that, the way we developed those was I selected the equations... Uh, and then I wrote a summary of why I thought they were important and what they said. So I described them. I wrote this equation down in symbols so they could see that. I described what it was in mathematics, why it was important in mathematics, and I described why I liked it and what the aesthetics that I could attain to it. They took that package of material and they created the musical interpretations. Uh, I, 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 I don't have it in my capacity to create the musical interpretations. They did that on their own. Um, and then we had a period when we would go to, we'd go drive down once a week and we'd spend the whole evening there. And we'd discuss it and we'd elaborate it and we'd build on it. So with a period of bouncing it back and forth like a tennis ball across the net, appropriately, mm. given that we're recording this around Wimbledon time, bouncing it back and forth like a a tennis ball across the net until it formed you know they would, some of their interpretations I felt when they explained them didn't really capture the mathematics it turned out sometimes they didn't understand what I was saying right. but in a period of several weeks between us we evolved these, these, these musical interpretations so what we finally were able to record in the recording studio and we also did some stage performances with a dance troupe as well huh. but we didn't manage to record that but when we recorded them 
what we ended up with was the result of a really interesting period where I would lob mathematics at them and they would lob music back at me <laughs> and we coalesced at the end. It was one of the most wonderful creative experiences in my life, bringing together these two disciplines, which, yes, mathematics and music are very similar in many ways, but marrying them together to produce something like harmonious equations uh, was a very fascinating challenge. I mean, there was also in the um, the video that I I looked at online. There's there's a, the the Euler's polyhedron formula has a really interesting visual as well, right? The it's like the globe that folds together and comes back out again. Um, right, yeah. That, that, that? I mean, that's just a, that was a little gift video that we yeah. just found on the web to illustrate it. Right. But, um, but I mean, one thing um, you know, one thing you said about that one is. Um, about that formula is even the world's strongest superpower must bow to Euler's formula. So, I'm, yeah, but that, I do that, want you to explain to me what you mean by that. <laughs> yeah, that was me uh, in my in my usual irreverent way. <laughs> I can't blame that one on 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 on, on Zamba. Um, and it, it was sort of a little bit tongue in cheek, but 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 in the sense of you know, um, uh, people sort of say you know. Gravity, it's the law, right? I mean, in, in a sense of no matter how <laughs> right. powerful you are, Newton's law of gravity, you have to obey. I mean, you know, I, I can I can, and I have to confess occasionally do drive faster than the speed limit and I've occasionally been known to accidentally run a red light, uh, <laughs> even especially more so on my bicycle. So, you know, we all break the law in one way or another at various times. There's so many laws we can't avoid it. Um, but there are some laws that we can't break. The mm-hmm. laws of physics, like gravity, um, and another one is, is something like Euler's, Euler's identity for, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the polyhedron. Uh, it's, it's a law because that's the way it has oh, to be. What does it do? Um, I mean, what does it tell us? It, it puts constraints broken. on, if, if you're drawing a map, with, or you're drawing, you're drawing a network. Let's think of a... Um, well, it was originally formulated for polyhedra, you know, things like tetrahedrons, cubes, icosahedrons and so forth. And it tells you that if you build uh, any kind of... I, any kind of, of tetrahedron, any, any kind of solid figure, a polyhedron, then the number of vertices minus the number of edges plus the number of faces will always work out to be two. So you can change the number of vertices, you can have more faces, but no matter how much you manipulate it, V minus E plus F will equal two. You simply can't go beyond that, and that can be cashed out in terms of, 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 of maps on the globe. You can, re, you know, politicians can change the configurations of, com- of countries. They can redraw, redraw borders. They can split a country into, into into little bits. So they can change the map of the world, but they can't change the map of the world in a way that makes it not satisfy. Euler's film, Euler's. because you know, <laughs> yeah. because when you've got a map of the world, it's really like a polyhedron. Um, you just got these edges between countries and so forth. Um, but but Euler's formula will still be there. So uh, it, it was my way of. I mean, that statement was although a little bit tongue in cheek. Was my way of saying that you know, there's uh, mathematics can be ignored in many cases, and people can do all kinds of things. But ultimately, you cannot come up against mathematics and win. Hmm. Uh, it hmm. will always win because it is the the absolute law. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, 
<laughs> I, I'd like to talk a little bit about this, um, the H-STAR project at Stanford that you're involved yeah. in. Because you've, you've, and it's interesting, the different kinds of things you've gotten involved with, it, even at Stanford alone, the study of langu- yeah. language, Center for Study of Language and Information, and now this H-STAR project, mm-hmm. which focuses on, I would, as I understand it, the, like the human ramifications and applications of technology. And, yeah. and I'm finding that um, this is a subject everyone wants to talk about now, right? I mean, kind of the, the enormity <laughs> yeah. of, of the yeah. role of technology in our lives is, is settling in, the, the reality of that and our, and our understanding yeah. of that. And then people are saying, well, you know, what do we do with this? And how do we make yeah. sense of it? And how do we make it purposeful and, and, and livable? Um, yeah. And I mean, one of the things that you uh, very surprised, really surprised me that you mentioned is in terms of mathematics that that computers have only really affected affected mathematics around the edges. That in fact, mathematics is yeah. still needs free form scribbling <laughs> to survive, yeah, yeah. which is so yeah. interesting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. I mean, uh, mathematics takes place in the human mind, or or increasingly. Uh, when human minds interact together, that we still have this nice romantic image of the of the lone mathematician working in the attic at, late at night, and and those people still exist. That's how Andrew Wiles solved Fermat's last theorem, and Grigory Perlman solved the Poincaré conjecture. So you still get these these lone mathematicians who struggle for years on their own and solve problems. But if you start to look at mathematics as a whole enterprise, and it's a huge enterprise, then. Um, an awful lot of mathematics these days, like everything else, is done collaboratively in teams that communicate right, right. by uh, both physically co- co-locating themselves at conferences and seminars and workshops and, and collaborating over the Internet. So it's now very much, a, a, like everything else, it's a collaborative discipline. But, but it, it's still about people talking to and with people. And the technology, other than the fact that we use email and things like that and video conferencing, the technology is still not really affecting the product itself. It's just around the edges. The, uh, it, mathematics comes down to pure thought in a single mind or in a group of minds. Mm. And, I, and I really do think that you have your finger, you have your finger on a pulse of this, this disconnect. Um, let me just say it this way, that, you know, on the one hand, as you and I have been discussing, many of us, I think most of us, are illiterate in the language of mathematics and then there's is the increasing reality that the indispensable tools of our everyday lives, you know, starting with our mobile phones, as you say, rely on masses of abstract math. Yeah. So we're living with this thing, these things. We need these things. We can't begin to grasp what's behind them. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll, I mean, the scale of that has got huge, but it actually... It, that began with the very beginnings of mathematics because arguably mathematics began, and I would say this is when it began, with the invention of numbers. And, and we think that took place in Sumeria about uh, maybe 8,000 years ago. And numbers were introduced essentially to provide us a form of money. Uh, numbers mm. were things that mediated trading goods. And so numbers were invented to give us money, and money was invented to give us... And because money was invented, we had to have numbers. So you don't have money without numbers. And so the moment we invented numbers, we did it to introduce into interpersonal reactions in society, to introduce abstractions that could mediate. Because numbers are pure abstractions, money is an abstraction. I mean, 10, right. a $10 bill is just a physical manifestation of the number 10. I mean, that's all it is. You've just got a physical token of 10 and you've got a mental token of 10. Um, and nowadays we have bits on, on disks in, in, in banks. I mean, you know, we right, don't even need right. the $10 bill. It's right, just a, a right. configuration of bits in a computer. So 
we are mediated in terms of the kind of life we lead, the length of our lives. Almost everything about our lives is, is mediated by money, and money is just numbers, and numbers are abstractions. So the moment we invented numbers and at the same time invented money, we started on this track where our lives were governed by numbers and abstractions. And it's all that's happened recently is the scale has got much bigger and the cha- rate of change has been fast. But our lives became irrevocably changed and bound up with numbers the moment we invented numbers and money about 8,000 years ago. Mm. Um, and we, we've gotten used to that. Um, and people actually don't think of, num- of money as, as abstract. No, they uh, I don't. Do remember they don't. When, <laughs> I mean, I do remember when credit... I'm old enough to remember when credit cards came along. And I do remember that initially there was a lot of unwillingness to go to a credit card because people wanted dollar bills. In, yeah. in my case, I was in England, real money. it was, it yeah. was pounds and coins. and so. Um, but now we've got used to that. And then, of course, when, when, when you start having mobile phone transactions and things, you don't even need the credit card anymore. Yeah. Um, you know, you just go in and you, you just wave your mobile phone in front of a, of a scanner. So, um, and the rate of change has, 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 has gone up dramatically and the extent has gone up. But it's actually not a new phenomenon. Mm. Um, we are more aware of it because we are living through through the latest transition. Um, but I do remember the transition to credit cards created just as much a sort of discussion about it and, and, and all sorts of you know, stories about scared grannies in places that were worried about their money and so yeah. forth. Um, so what's the, what's the conversation you're interested in, in furthering now or informing? You know, I mean, what, 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 what would you like to see in terms of how we, how we move through, you know, how we make sense of this transition? Um, um, <laughs> you know, I, mean, I, I, I forget who it was that said prediction is difficult, especially about the future, um, <laughs> and, and it's not. And it's not clear sort of where where things are going. I mean, there's all sorts of uh, you know. I within the last few weeks since the sort of the Edward Snowden leaks and so forth, I've actually been very vocal on Twitter and in blogs and things uh, discussing that issue yeah. uh, because I actually feel very wrapped up in it because it is all about digitization of information and processing numbers and data searches and things. Um, in, in fact, I actually, in, in, the, in, the, in the post-9-11 period, I did, I did several projects for the, for the intelligence community, the Defence Department, to try and improve sort of searching things. Um, mm-hmm. So I actually feel, um, in, in a tiny way, one of the people who began this process that's led us to all of these revelations about I the see. NSA and so okay. forth. So I feel somewhat wrapped up in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's raising all sorts of fascinating questions. I'll tell you what, I'm, at this moment, I am really glad that the founding fathers of the United States put involved those various uh, principles in the Constitution because yeah. it's in, when you look back at it, at what happened in the, in, in the 18th century when they formulated those rules in a very different world, it's fascinating the degree to which those basic principles in the Bill of Rights in particular... Yeah how pertinent they are to what's happening today. Right, remain relevant. And that's, you know, um, as a piece of human history, it's fascinating how the world has changed so much and yet we are now going back to those founding principles within this country to sort of sort ourselves out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've got faith in the system. I think we will sort ourselves out. I'm not a harbinger of doom. But it's remarkable how those principles are still sort of proving extremely relevant today to steady the course because the rate of change is big. And when the rate of change goes up, the, 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 the dangers of, of, of things going drastically wrong are higher. Um, you know, the, the, the stakes are certainly much higher. 
Um, and I have a sense of that because I do have a, a mathematician's sense of number and scale and what's possible and not what possible. I know the power of number. I know the limitations of number perhaps better than most people do. And so I probably have a better sense of, of some aspects of that than than many people. So I, I, I've been trying to contribute to that discussion um, because it's part of, of growing up yeah, to live right. in the world we've created. We've created yes. this digital world, um, which we find phenomenally attractive. We all get sucked into it. I'm amazed how quickly I was able to switch from one technology to another um, to just do all of these things that we do, to make use of, the, of, of, the, of our communication devices all the time, to live in an always-on society. And if a, if a guy in his mid-60s like me can make rapid changes to do that, mm. then it's clear that human beings are suckers for, for sort of picking up these new technologies. And so uh, we have built this world. We find aspects of it attractive. But we're just now learning all of the various consequences that come with it. And so we've created a whole realm of problems that we're going to have to solve as a society. Yeah. You know, this is it's not it's just kind of tangential to that, but it feels a little bit related. One of the interesting ways you talk about how mathematics has evolved is, is that across history, um, there are there's abstract math going on, which has no conceivable application um, at the time in which it's being done. But, for example, yeah. you've talked about how encry- encryption systems that now run the Internet um, followed on work with prime m- numbers a couple of centuries ago, yeah. at, at which time it was outlandish to imagine that these things would ever have practical applications. And yeah. now fundamental aspects of our reality depend on them. Yeah. And in fact, one of the, one of the leading people, like G.H. Hardy in, in, in Cambridge, actually went on record in a book and said... Uh, he was quite sure, because someone had challenged him about you know, the fact that you can use these things for practical uses in mathematics. And he said, he went on record as saying nothing he had done in his professional career could ever find practical application. And by golly, <laughs> within 100 years, it's the basis of the internet and modern society and, and, and security. So uh, if there's one thing history tells us, it's never, ever look at something and say this will never be used. Because in the case mm-hmm. of mathematics, time and time again, things come around and get used. Uh, it's just, you know, you know I, I'm actually in two minds about this. I'm always surprised and I think, wow, this is what's, what, what Eugene Wigner described as the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. Yes, yes, yes. We, we, we develop mathematics to be useful in the first place. Uh, and so the, at first it's, got, it's obviously going to be of use, but then we sort of follow how in, our intuitions, we go off on these tangents, we, we, we pursue these abstract ideas, and, and, and we, we, we end up producing something that just looks like a pure art form, just, just having no context, no, 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 no connection with reality or whatever. We've, we've let our imaginations run free, subject to the constraints of mathematical logic. And we produce these new theories, and they're beautiful and they're internally coherent. They don't seem to have any application. And then, 100 years later, maybe longer, someone comes along and finds a really important application. So... Part of me says that is absolutely surprising. Wigner was right to call it the unreasonable effect of some mathematics. On the other hand, if you go back to the point I made earlier, that mathematics is really just looking at the way the human mind encounters its environment, then if that's what we're doing, you should expect that things we develop, even though we can't understand how it's going to be relevant now, will eventually be, be relevant. Because what it really tells us is at the time we've done that mathematics we haven't developed as a society or individuals to the point where we can mm. appreciate what we've just seen. We have to we've catch up with our own... And we have to catch yeah. up with it. Interesting. And so, in a sense, it's not a mystery. It's just part of what mathematics is and how it works. Hmm. Hmm. Um, so, so tell me about these um, 
massively open online courses you're doing. I mean, what is it like to teach 27,000 people? <laughs> uh, it's like going on the radio and talking to however many <laughs> okay. million people we're talking to now, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it, it actually is very much like that. I mean, the whole, the whole idea is, and it, this is consistent, you know, when, when I, early on in my career, I, I mean, mathematicians typically write books. I mean, they write, te- they, they write papers, they write research papers, research mathematicians. But from a very early stage, even so, shortly after I got my PhD, uh, I started not only writing papers for my colleagues, but I started writing books. Originally, there were books for the mathematicians, then later books for a general audience. So I've always been driven for various reasons towards uh, trying to spread the word. There's a sort of evangelical streak in me here uh, to sort of spread the word <laughs> I, I about mathematics. You are to, totally to... <laughs> a mathematics evangel- evangelist. I know that. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'd better buy some hair oil or something and a, and a sequin suit or something. I don't know. But in any case, I've, I've certainly always enjoyed doing that. You know, some, some of us are just sort of born that way for whatever reason. So I've, I've certainly always done that. But So I've always been sort of trying to put forward the words, uh, uh, sort of put out the idea of mathematics uh, f- for large groups of people. I mean, it's just... Uh, I, I don't know why I do it. I actually don't know why, but but, but I certainly have certainly it's a en- calling. enjoy doing it. it it's... It, it's, it's um, yeah. Actually, we, 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 you, you remind me what the question was because we were going on in a different direction. Oh, well, no, the, the, and, the, and this the, yeah. the, the, now you can you can actually reach more and more people all at once. Oh yeah, that's, these, that's these, so, so yeah. So you know, once I once I started writing books, and then eventually I went to I started doing a newspaper column in the UK. I started writing for the Guardian newspaper um, back in the I guess it was the eighties, and wrote a column for about ten years. Um, I think it was maybe the first national newspaper in the world that carried an actual mathematics oh. column with mathematical content. Uh, but I did that for several years. Then I've done sort of work with sort of consulting for some TV. I was a consultant on the CBS series Numbers. I've done various things, but it's all been about trying to reach different audiences. And so when, when the MOOC came along on my very own campus where the, the, the sort of the ground, at least the, the breakthrough work was done a couple of years ago now, uh, that was from... I'd also got involved in video games. A few years ago, I actually founded a video game company to make educational video games. In fact, our first one is coming out in about a month's time. Oh, really? From the day, yeah, uh-huh. uh, a little thing called yeah. Was It's Trouble. But, but whenever there's a new communication medium, um, I, I sort of look at it and, 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 and I can't resist seeing if I can use that or how I could use that. I know I can use it. How can I use that to communicate mathematics and you do it in different ways you know the way you in a movie you do it one way uh, on tv you do a different way in a mm-hmm. textbook you do it one way in a magazine article uh, in a video game you can do mathematics one way and then along comes the MOOCs and I think okay this is a this is a new medium um, let's see how we can use that to take mathematics to a yet a different audience um, and so I'm now you know I gave my first MOOC a, a year ago and um, then I repeated a variation. I changed it a bit and gave it again in the spring of this year. And then uh, in September this year, I'm going to give it a third time in, in a third incarnation. A third sort of incarnation. Hmm. And but, but, yeah, and yeah. But the feeling is, um, you know, it's um, in many ways. It, 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 I approached it the way I approach uh, radio. I mean, you know, we're doing a radio interview now, mm-hmm. and, and we're aware that. Lots of people are going to listen to it, but it's basically it's just you and I talking. Yeah, and so it, I just I don't think about the audience. I just talk to. It talk, still has an intimate uh, quality to, to it, and it's very intimate. Yeah. It's talking to people. Yeah, and um, 
And, and I, going into the MOOC, and so I've always done that my, when I do my Scott, things with Scott Simon on Weekend Edition, it's just Scott and I talking. Uh, and, and, OK, there's microphones involved and we're 3,000 miles apart and, and it's going out over the airways, but it's still just two people having fun and talking. Yeah. And I think education to me, I approach the MOOC the same way. It's not about me talking to 100,000 students. It's about me talking to one student. Right. Uh, in fact, in, in many ways, I find MOOCs more intimate than giving a lecture to a class of 30 students. And most of my time, I, I give lectures to classes of university students of maybe between 15, 25, 30 students sometimes, and I give big lectures to sort of a few hundreds of students. But those are very impersonal. They are theatrical displays. Yeah, I mean, right. if you've got an audience, it's theatre, and, and you're not really talking to anybody. You make occasional eye contact in the classroom, but it's basically uh, a broadcast sort of thing with a little bit of interaction when you do Q&A. Um, but... Part of doing a MOOC is your, it's you and one student because by its very nature, it's one person sitting at a computer in front of a screen interacting with you. Now, the interaction right. is, is mostly one way, but, but part of the trick of putting these courses together is to compensate for the fact that the student can't directly address you back. Um, and that's why it's a very interesting challenge. And I, this one is a big challenge because you have to engineer the whole educational package of the course so that it can still work absent the one thing that the student can't answer back to you directly. Now, in a big class of 100 students, the students can't do that either, but they have TAs and they can interact with each other in the classroom, and so there's, there's a lot of interaction going on. With a MOOC, uh, the challenges are more, more acute. Um, when you think about individual students in remote places who are not even in the same classroom as other students and, and don't have access to anyone to ask questions for. Um, that makes it a very interesting thing to design, but it's still one-on-one. -on -one. It's, it's making contact with one mm. human being. I, in putting together my MOOC, I went to... The, one of the things I put a lot more effort into was to try and establish a one-on-one contact with the, with the students. And, and, and I know that works because... Throughout my courses, throughout my MOOCs, students drop off for all sorts of reasons. You know, they have family issues, they right. have work issues. The number of students who will send me an email saying, I'm sorry to have dropped your class, Professor Devlin. I was really enjoying it. And they give a reason for dropping it. Now, quite frankly, they and I know that if they're one student amongst 40 or 50,000 students, I'm not even going to notice that right. they've dropped off It's not off like they they've do. been turning up in your lecture hall. So, yeah. yeah, but they, they feel bad. Right. They right. feel bad about doing it, and they, they email me and say, I'm sorry, mm. I'm going to take it again next time. I hope I can manage to keep up with you next time. Mm. That was kind of interesting. It didn't surprise me, but it, sort of, mm. it was one of these things where I was surprised and wasn't surprised, actually, because I, I sort of expected but when it happened, I thought, wow, they really are doing this thing. It's, it's making that contact. And, and I did um, go to some effort uh, and some expense of, the, of the, the limited budget I had to put the, the MOOC together to try and establish that connection between human beings. And I did that actually by mm -hmm. uh, most of the stuff is very low res and, and, and you know, handwriting written. And most of the mathematics is done with a, a cheap little camcorder mounted on a tripod hmm. above my desk. And you just see my handwriting the stuff. And oh, it's not low res. Yeah. It's not very expensive. And it, it looks kind of cheap and it was cheap. But I did go into the campus TV studio here and spend a, an exhausting six-hour period actually recording all of the intercam punctuations which actually if you look at them I'm not talking about mathematics 
I'm establishing human contact by looking into that camera, eye to eye, looking at that student. And that was all about establishing a human contact because mathematics in particular is impersonal. It's absolutely impersonal, and, and it's, it, by nature it's decontextualised. Right. And, and that makes it a very forbidding landscape to, to enter for human beings. And so if you can turn it into a connection with another human, you're three-quarters of the way to, to helping that student along. So to mm. me, it was all about establishing human, human connection and getting them to feel comfortable with me as their friend and instructor. You know, um, maybe that kind of shines a light a little bit on where we started about why this is forbidding territory and it's but it's so interesting that you are getting this very deep clarity on the importance of the human connection through this technology which allows you to do it in a very remote way you know that's pretty interesting yeah yeah. no you know this this goes back to the power of television you know all these uh, you know all these studies that show that when you know well newspaper stories as well as studies when you know when when a, when a TV newscaster gets sick, you know, they get thousands of letters saying, get well soon. Now, right. why would someone feel anything towards someone who simply reads the news to them? Because they don't feel that way about someone who writes a newspaper story. Mm. Um, well, the answer, of course, is every day at six o'clock, that person's in your living room mm. talking to you. Right. And as human beings, we evolved to connect to people who come into our, our, our immediate environment on a daily basis. So it's natural that we begin to feel an affinity with the people whose vision, I mean, whose image on the screen maybe, is mm. presented to us on a daily basis. Mm. And, mm. And, and we're just wired that way to respond to that. Mm. And, you know, the interesting thing is to, is, to, is to use technology to do that at a distance. And that's what television does, of course. And, you know, many of my colleagues at Stanford do research that shows how unbelievably powerful those human connections are and how they can be used for great good right. and, unfortunately, for great evil. Right. Uh, right. Well, you've been so generous with your time. I just want to ask you a few more questions. This is really sure, a no wonderful problem. conversation. Um, <laughs> and I, I'd actually like, as we kind of draw to a close, I'd kind of like to um, take you back to the book you wrote in the late 90s, Goodbye Descartes, oh, The yeah. End of Logic yeah. and the Search for a New Cosmology of uh, Mind. Yeah. I mean, I found yeah. that very, you know, a re- really wonderful um, book, and you... You know, one of the things you're pointing out is that just in about the last 300 years, we'd, we'd glorified rational thought and logic in a yeah. way that had not been done before in history, or even the history of science, kind of yeah. treating our minds as calculators. Right, but that we're now that. getting yeah. this much more sophisticated understanding of our minds and brains and learning and intelligence. And then the, the reason I thought I would like to talk to you about this now is, I mean, that was, I think, 96 or 97. So here we are. Yeah these decades later and these decades of rapid transition and and rapid new fields of knowledge about, in particular, our brains and our minds Uh. and our bodies. Um, So I wonder, you know, how are you thinking, how would you look now at this notion of, you know, what what the world looks like beyond logic, um, beyond Descartes? Um, Well, if anything, what's happened, certainly what's happened since then has simply reinforced the feelings I had then. It was interesting the transformation that led me to write Goodbye, Descartes. And it was very explicitly goodbye to the sort of Cartesian, logical-based approach to life. And uh, in a sense, I was finally renouncing my former self because I went into okay. mathematics. Right. Um, I mean, I don't think I was ever a sort of a total Platonist. 
business. But I went into mathematics seduced by the fact that of, of the fact of the power of the logic and the reasoning. And, 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 in, and in the 19th century, mathematics rooms supreme. It's the basis of physics, of engineering, calculus, a lot of our economics and so forth. So, you know, mathematics literally built the modern world. So it's unbelievably powerful. And it began by just astronomical reflections. But its power was phenomenal, and we built the modern world using mathematics um, to the degree where people in mathematics including myself began to think well we've got this powerful mechanism we can take it into the realms of psychology sociology linguistics and start to make sense of these soft sciences you know that are uh, where there are not many symbols on the page and, and, and we can try we could certainly try to solve every problem now yeah. that, that had already been tried a, bit, a few decades earlier by the people build, trying to build artificial intelligence systems and expert systems and in both cases they had limited but very limited success but not great success um, but you know undaunted by that I thought well we can maybe do it in natural language understanding language and processing so when Stanford founded its Center for Study of Language and Information in 1983, I got very interested and, uh, and came out as a visit in 85, came down and came as a, an invited visitor for 85 to 87, became a member of CSLI and was doing all of this research. And, and I came in thinking, I know all of this mathematics. I've got really a lot to contribute to this, this enterprise. Now, what I didn't expect was that when I got to CSLI, I would be brought face to face with all of these uh, psychologists, these linguists, these uh, psycholinguists, these sociolinguists, the sociologists, the ethnomethodologists. I was brought up with all of these people in, in, in what I used to call the soft sciences, um, right, right. as opposed to the hard sciences, and thinking, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't so naive that I think I would be able to say, Here's some mathematics, it will make your discipline more, more, more robust, although some of my colleagues seem to have that belief. Um, but what I, I, was, I was prepared to sort of be taught new things. What I wasn't prepared for, but what happened to me, was I ended up realising the huge limitations on mathematics in those domains. I mean, they are phenomenal limitations. Um, we, the, when we write down theory, and this happened to Chomsky when he tried to sort of do the same to linguistics in the 50s, it, right. it became clear that it, there were, it, it was good stuff and lots of stuff has come out of it, but it wasn't coming close. It was like trying to reach the moon by building taller and taller ladders. That was not the way. It didn't mean to say you wouldn't get to the moon, but you weren't going to get there by building a ladder. And building the ladder that got us to the moon um, certainly involved a lot of mathematics. And building the ladder that will involve us to understanding, the, the sort of, to, to sort of really understanding people and society, mathematics can certainly play a role, but it's not the rule of the king and lord that it was in physics. It's the rule mm -hmm. of, 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 a, of, a, of a trusted worker who can provide stuff as and when it's needed. Um, and, and, and I realised just how complex these, the, the, the problems that were being grappled at by the, by the social and the human sciences. Um, so part of my recognition of that was writing Goodbye Descartes, trying to articulate why I thought it was... We needed to stop trying to build mathematical ladders that would help us reach this moon of, uh, of understanding and of, of human beings and society and simply view mathematics as a tool that could play a useful role in a more broad and holistic disciplinary study, mm. interdisciplinary study, that would help us to understand it. And, and um, uh, one by one, uh, a lot of, not a lot, but a substantial number of mathematicians have, have, uh, have began to sort of make that, that recognition. And along with that came, in my case, the final acknowledgement that mathematics isn't the discovery of, a, of an external platonic realm, 
that it's actually the building and study of a realm within our own minds. So it's okay. a social construct. I mean, I don't know if you think of, would think of this in this context at all, but it seemed to me that it seems to me that in this century, and you know, and as late as uh, two thousand eight, with the economic downturn, the crisis, um, we've kind of lived more deeply into this recognition that that we, you know, that that we had called things rational that weren't rational, right? There, you know, oh, this, yeah. this principle of yeah. logic um, and, yeah. and pretending that when numbers involved it, are involved, it is logical. You know, somehow it was those, in precisely those systems, our financial systems, um, that yeah. work with numbers. Um, yeah. You know, let, let's do the numbers. Um, that, uh, yeah. That, in, yeah. that turned out to be these monuments to irrationality. And then, then suddenly there's this recognition also in the field of economics, which I think had 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 that Cartesian view um, yeah. that somehow at, at, at bottom this is all this is all rational that that we're and that we're getting just well, in fact what is you know this is what you're pointing at as well we're yeah. we're getting a more complex sophisticated understanding of ourselves from a lot of different directions yeah yeah and you know ultimately mathematics is black and white and the world we live in is an infinite variety of shades of gray um, and uh, I mean, mathematics can work in, 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 in localised ways and be useful, and it can also provide an interesting metaphor. It can provide metaphors that help us make decisions. I mean, it's, it, there's all sorts of great uses mathematics has in, in sort of making sense of today's world and building the world from, of tomorrow from it. Um, but as I said a moment ago, the days of the 19th century when mathematics ruled how you built your machines and how the machines worked, those are gone. And if anything, the, 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 the financial crisis was a great warning that says, if you build systems based on mathematics, you are heading for disaster. Hmm. Uh, and this cycles back to this business about you know, NSA and security. Yeah. Those systems are built on mathematics. And they, if, if they're not checked, they will lead to disaster every bit, if not worse, than the financial crisis for the very same reasons, because mathematics works when you're talking about a clockwork mechanical universe. It doesn't work when you're talking about human societies. <laughs> right, unfortunately, that's not the world we live in. But, you it's know, not, no. yeah, I, I, and, I, and I, it's so important. And I also do want to circle back to your love of mathematics. And in fact, uh, yeah. you know, it's very interesting to me the the spiritually and theologically evocative way, yeah. the aesthetic way that um, physicists and mathematicians um, speak of mathematics. There's this this quote of uh, the f- English mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell that I've seen you use a few yeah. times. I'm just going to read this because it's very beautiful. I hadn't uh, hadn't had it and seen it before. Mathematics, rightly viewed, possesses not only truth but supreme beauty, a beauty cold and austere like that of sculpture, without appeal to any part of our weaker nature, without the generous trappings, gorgeous trappings of painting or music, yet sublimely pure and capable of a stern perfection such as only the greatest art can show. <laughs> yeah, isn't that wonderful? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah actually, as you were saying that, I, was, I remembered your very first question was, was, you know, when I was a child, do I have, am I spiritual? And I actually mm-hmm. sort of tangented off immediately to talk about not, being, not having religious beliefs in a sort of a white-bearded God in the sky and that kind of thing. But, I mean, and the reality is, of course, I'm deeply spiritual. It's just that my spirituality is in, 
is in mathematics and through mathematics understanding ourselves and the place we have in the the environment we're in. So in the sense, if spirituality means revering existence, uh, revering my fellow creatures on the planet, uh, reflecting in them, thinking about them, in my case, is through the, through the eyes and the mind of a mathematician, then I'm as spiritual as it gets. And, <laughs> and, you know, and if that manifests itself with poetic language and overblown use of language, then that's just the price you pay from that spirituality. So I, I, I suspect I'm in many ways, in, in, in the way I suspect I probably am, deeply spiritual. It just doesn't cash out in, in the terms of 2,000-year-old fables. <laughs> OK. <laughs> Let me just ask you this as as we close. Well, one 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 question. I'm, I'm okay. is dying to know how you came to have an extinct species of possum named after you. <laughs> oh yes. Um What's it called? Pildry Devlin Eye. Yes. Um, yeah, a few years ago I was the Dean of Science at St. Mary's College of California over in the East Bay. Um, and, uh, and, you know, among the faculty I had this, 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 uh, this, this, uh, this paleontologist called Judd Case, uh, who was doing research, and he had a lot of. He would travel every year and do these field studies, and he was getting funded by the National Science Foundation. And then one year he was due to go on his on his, his trip, and he was in between grants. There simply wasn't money to to support that trip. And and so I had a discretionary budget as a dean, and I could have spent it on you know flying myself around or whatever. But it, but he he needed to go, and I thought he was doing great work. So I took my discretionary budget, and I you know I gave him a few thousand dollars. It was a tiny amount of money, just enough to get him to <laughs> to the Antarctic to do his research that time. Um, and so I didn't think anything more of it. But while he was there, he made this discovery of this extinct species of possums. And like as like with astronomy, it turns out that in paleontology, 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 right, you get meteorites named after you. Or yeah, you get to name them. Okay. And so he decided that in recognition of the fact that I'd made possible the, the study, the, the field study that discovered it, he would name this, this extinct possum after me. And it was only after he did it that he, uh, that he told me it and said, you, you know, you now have a possum named after you. So, um, <laughs> I don't have a satellite or a planet, but I do have an extinct possum <laughs> named after me. And, uh, I, uh, uh, and that's why, I mean, I, I feel sufficiently pleased about that, that it's on my homepage. With a, with a, Nice sketch of what this thing might have looked like. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How, how do you think um, this work you do, this life you lead, um, this mathematical thinking um, with which mm-hmm. you move through the world? You know, how how do you think it fuses? How, how do you think? Do you think it changes? How do you, do you think it forms your sense of of what it means to be human, or affects the way you live your life? Um. It's a good question, but it's a complicated question. I mean, you know, you, obviously, you can ask the same question to everybody because we yeah. all have these. Yeah. We sharpen our, uh, our our intuitions and our skill sets into certain directions, and by definition, that changes. I mean, that's that's what education is. It changes the way you view yourself and the way you view the world. So, for sure. It changes. Um, it, 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 I see the world differently from from anybody who's not a mathematician. In fact, I see the world differently from many mathematicians. So, in some sense, uh, I'm seeing things that other people are not seeing. Um, but I think it's 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 almost. I'm, 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 Actually, I guess I have to use the word shades of grey, although that's been co-opted for a different purpose these days. But, <laughs> but anyway, um, I think we all see the world through shades of grey. Um, there's a period, when most of us learn mathematics, there's a period in our early career, when we're in our teens or 20s, when we think that mathematics provides the black and white view of the world, the view of the world. I remember distinctly having that view mm-hmm. uh, because it seemed to be so logically correct. Um, now, it is logically correct, more so than any other discipline, 
But the question is, at, at what cost for, for connecting to the rest of the world, hmm. um, especially the human social world? So there's that period, but then you, you go beyond that, or you should go beyond that, to realise that mathematics is just another shade of grey that gives you a different perspective on the world, but it's still the same world. And, and you know, uh, 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 the grey world to one person is not that much different from the grey world to another people, to another person. You know, I mean, it, you know, one of the things that, talking to so many of my colleagues at Stanford here who study international relationships and, and you know, interactions across boundaries and things, is, you know, when it comes down to it, there's not that much difference between a person on one side of the globe and a person on another side of the globe. Um, you know, we still have the same life challenges. We have to eat, we have to live, we, we have to go to the bathroom and various things. So we are still fundamentally humans. And these different perspectives, although at one level give you a very different view of the world, when you really step back from it, they're just different shades of grey on the world. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are many things where I disagree violently with people on things like global warming and evolution and things, and I can't imagine how they could get into the position of not seeing it the way I do. Yeah. Um, but it, it's still the fact that there are these different perspectives, and on sometimes, for some things, I would say the chances are my view is perhaps more accurate, whatever that means, because oh. the fit between the mathematical view and what we're looking at is better. But on other occasions, my view is probably not the best view to have because the different perspectives uh, are more appropriate and less appropriate in, in, in different aspects of the world. Mm. Um, but I think at some level, it's just, it's just shades of grey. So, so this really is my last question. Is, is, there, any, is there any frontier right now um, that you're aware of where, where new things are being learned or new processes are, are being experimented with? Um, that you're watching. That are, <laughs> wow, where that do are, we begin? Yes. <laughs> well, just, just tell us about one thing that's unfolding that you're really watching with great interest. Um, oh, it's the one I'm right in the middle of, which is online okay. learning. Not because of the fact that we're reaching thousands of people. The, the MOOCs are probably just a, trans, a transitory phenomenon. What, what is that? Massively, the mass, massively open, open online oh, yes, course. Yes. Yeah, the name is a sort of derivation for massive multiplayer online games, yeah. a, a generation before it. So uh, it's not so much that, it's, it's just... It's just it's it's what it's what we we are beginning to, we're finally beginning to understand how people learn and the, the, here's, a, here's an analogy uh, if you went back to the 18th century and you got sick good luck because you <laughs> might find someone who instinctively was a good doctor or was lucky but medicine was just hit and miss by then and depended on talent and 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 and, and, and whatever it was on luck yeah. because it took the development of first chemistry, then biology, evolutionary biology, and the development of modern science on which we can ground medical training. So when you go to a doctor today, the chances are that person is going to make you well, providing you it's a recoverable disease, because we've learned the science on which medicine's built. Science in 200 years, science went from hit and miss hunches to a scientifically grounded discipline where the chances were very high that the doctor would be able to help you and, and make you well. Okay. Right now in education, we are in the 18th century. You'll find good teachers, bad teachers, it's right. hit and miss. Right. It manifests itself in things like the math wars and debates about educational principles because there is not really a good scientific basin, basis on which to ground teaching and learning. 
well, let me back up a bit. There actually is one, and it's been, been developed since the 1950s, and it's finally beginning to get some traction. We are now at the stage where we're beginning to understand how people learn and how to teach them. Uh, we are actually, I think, within maybe a couple of centuries, maybe, within, within maybe even a couple of half centuries, maybe even less, maybe within a couple of decades, have been able to actually improve mathematics education to to the point where people actually do begin to get it mm-hmm. and, and get over the hurdles because we're beginning to understand it better. And, and we are now approaching the stage where education will be like medicine. Yes, there's still uncertainties in medicines. Yes, you can still get good doctors and bad doctors, but it's grounded in a huge body of scientific fact. Education is now starting to make that transition to the fact that, yes, there'll be good teachers and bad teachers and better teachers and worse teachers, but it will all be grounded in understanding. And in the process of understanding how we learn, we are, of course, doing what mathematics has been doing since the very beginning, as I've been saying, we've been learning about ourselves because the more we learn about how we learn, the more we learn Mm. about what it is to be human. Mm. So it all circles round to learning about what we are and and how we function. Mm. Okay, well... Thank you so much for this big conversation. It's going to be a wonderful show. Um, we'll, we'll let you know um, when we're putting it on the air. We'll give you a good advance notice, and and uh, and I'm excited about using some of that music. So, um, okay. Um, th- thank you for the invitation. I've yeah. enjoyed talking with you. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Thanks Bye-bye. very much. Bye. Yeah.